Well, good morning, Oak Grove. It's an honor and a privilege to get to open the word with you. We're going to be in 1 Peter. If this is your first time with us, everybody else could guess. What, what we do is we just pick up where we left off the week before. So last week we stopped with verse 9. So today we'll be picking up in chapter 2. And we are continuing our series, Living for What Lasts. Because we know the only thing that lasts is God and his kingdom. And the only thing that we do that will last are the things we do to contribute in advancing the kingdom of God here on earth. So before we jump into it, stop and pray, and then we'll, we'll dive right in. Lord, you're beautiful. As we proclaim through song, as we proclaim through taking the Lord's Supper, you're too kind to us. Lord, we prayed this morning that you would choose to let your us, that as Jesus says in John 3, that you would breathe on this place and you would give us eyes to see and, and ears to hear the truth that's in your word. Lord, I pray that we would be a people who are quick to admit sin and not only just admit it, but repent of it. We need you as we look at your word in Jesus' name. Amen. So, um, over the last like three or four years, I've got into this really nerdy thing. It's called fantasy football. Yeah. The wives are laughing because they're like, yeah, my husband does that too. But uh, what is, I used to just not watch Sunday football very much uh, because I didn't care. But now you can generally pick up any station that's playing a game and you may or may not have somebody playing. So I was watching the uh, Cowboys-Jets game last week and I... I just, uh, not Cowboys, Jets. Who do the Cowboys play? Giants. Yeah. Um, but I was watching the, the pregame, and it just struck me as, like, hilarious. So you got these 20- and 30-year-old men who are making millions of dollars, and they're all doing, like, these pep talks to get the most play. I was talking to my dad on the phone, and I started laughing about it. I, I mentioned it, and he starts laughing, too. And all of a sudden, he says, you know, um, we shouldn't need the pep talk in church either, should we? I was like, oh, now it got all convicting. <laughs> but, you know, when we start thinking about it, like we do need encouragement. And what we've been given is so much more than just a little bit of money. We've been given love from the God who spoke galaxies into existence. Text this morning that we who were not a people are now a people. We who used to not have mercy now have found mercy. And this God who has given all this to us also gently urges and encourages and calls us to continue to do his work. He would have been fine saying, I've said it once, it should be enough. But that's not how he operates with us. He calls us over and over and over to do the works of the ministry in patience and in kindness. So in the text of that God shows us again who we are in Christ, and he's going to encourage us to live honorably and he, he, he gives us a motivation point outside of, I told you so. It's 
for our benefit, the benefit of the lost, and ultimately when and the lost are now saved and they're worshiping, it's for God's glory. So when it comes to Jesus, we are given a new identity and a new purpose, and we're to live in a way that draws all men into the loving arms of Christ as we proclaim, verse 9, the excellencies of his glory. This morning, we're going to see the need to live righteously in a world that's hostile to God as we act as ambassadors to this new kingdom that we're now a part of. So, what is true? This is the thing I think we'll see driven from our text as we read it. As God's elect exiles, when you walk in holiness, it is for your good, the good of the lost, and it glorifies God. So what do we do? This, this what do we do statement is our application. Uh, and if, if the application statement is ever too wordy, I probably missed the point. God doesn't make the things he's telling us too tricky. And so what are we to do with all this? We are to walk in holiness or we are to live honorably. Look at our text and Lord willing, you'll see it jumping off the page. Starting in verse 10. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you have not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when you speak against, so that when they speak against you as evildoers that they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of May the Lord add blessing to the reading of his word. So first we're going to look at verse 10, and we're going to see that we are God's people who now have received God's mercy. Last week you'll remember that our entire time was devoted to new identity that we have in Christ. We are now a chosen race. We are now a royal priesthood. We are now a holy nation and a people for God's own possession. Verse 10 is a continuation of this thought, bringing emphasis to this new identity. And how he's bringing emphasis to it is by making the case from the Old Testament. Verse 10 is an Old Testament reference showing how we've now been adopted by God. Verse 10 is a reference to Hosea. This reference, just by them mentioning alone, would have taken this original audience's mind back to where, where it was found in Hosea. You know, uh, this is how a rabbi would teach. They would say a sentence from the Old Testament, and the people, they would go there and they would repeat it back. They that, that they knew the context. For instance, we've always heard this weird stuff on Jesus when he's hanging on the cross. He says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Um, there's a lot of stuff about that, and most of it's just blatantly wrong. A psalm, a psalm in our English Bibles entitled, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It's like Psalm 22. 
I wish I would have thought about it before we got up here and I would have given you the exact reference. I feel like 22 is right. But so what's going on there is uh, he quotes the first line of the and as a classic rabbinical teaching, the people would be able to recite the rest of the psalm. They knew what was coming. So the, why have you forsaken me? It paints the whole story about the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the Romans encircling him and hanging. It's, it's there. It's painting. It, this is pointing to him. He's literally declaring on the cross to be the Messiah from the situation that's taking place in front of them. And they would have seen that. Well, not the Romans, because they didn't know the Old Testament, but everybody else there. Talking about his clothing being divided. So here, this quotation of the Old Testament, what would have happened is the, the, the people would have painted the picture because they knew the book of Hosea. It would be like if I sang, and I'm sorry, like, I'm just, I'm sorry for singing in front of you. Hill, far away, was a... And your mind can fill in the blanks. Or, amazing grace. Or for my less regenerate brothers and sisters, uh, I got friends in... I knew I would get y'all. I like the song too, don't feel bad about it. So at the reference, your mind filled in the context, right? And here's, here's the reference, and their mind would have filled in the context. The reference is, once you were not a people, but now you're Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. It is found in the Old Testament book of Hosea. Hosea was a prophet, and I'm going to fill in the context for you this morning so that it lands, because this is an important verse in the Old Testament. Hosea was a prophet, and God would lives of his prophets to explain how he was going to act in the future with his people. And God tells Hosea, some of y'all think the Bible's G-rated. It is not. He goes and tells Hosea to marry this prostitute. And this prostitute is Gomer. The ESV calls her a woman of whoredom. And she would be the picture of, of Israel's infidelity to God. Hosea does just as God has commanded him, and he goes and he marries this, this woman, Gomer, and he, he buys her prostitution, and he marries her. And this is the, the picture of our redemption from the slavery of sin that we have freely put ourselves in. It seems that they had a child together, and you'll know why I say it seems in a second. This child's name, but her, her harlotry, even while married, even in covenant to Hosea, continues, and she has two more children, and based on their names, I don't think they're Hosea's children. Hosea named the children, the first one, is it, the name's Jezreel, could have been someone else's. Jezreel's name means that God is going to break Israel. Jezreel was a famous place where wars had taken place, and it was just slaughter of Israelites. So him naming the child Jezreel, naming your child Pearl Harbor or uh, Benghazi, when, when the name would be said, 
people around you, their, their minds would go back to that national atrocity. You're welcome, Jezreel. Um, so the children, the children of what I believe of her harlotry, um, their names are kind of pretty. The first one is Lo Ruah, and the second one is Lo Ami. And these are the ones that directly correlate to our passage. Though their names sound pretty, the explanations are not. Lo Rumah means no mercy. So this child is proclaiming that Hosea is not going to have any mercy towards the child, like God's not going to have any mercy towards the people. Lo Ami means not my people. So the child's name is not my. So the first two takeaways from the story of Gomer should stop sleeping around, and second, Hosea should stop naming children. <laughs> the story gets much worse before it gets better. Gomer then sells herself back into prostitution while married commands Hosea to go and to redeem her again. Hosea is the picture of Christ and his church. The picture of Christ, it's a beautiful uh, picture that when we're living in defilement and sin, God comes to us and he made, he made covenant with his son. But not just that, when we are in covenant relationship and we walk away and we pursue sin freely, that just like Hosea pursued his bride, so does Christ pursue his church. So does Christ pursue you. God speaks to Hosea. He then tells him to change the children's names. Thank goodness. Lo Rumah and Lo Ami, their names now mean you are mine, or for us, you are my people. And Lo Ami, her, you have received mercy. Let's not leave out Jezreel, even though that's not a part of this text. Instead of being a, known for being a valley of atrocity, there's a prophecy over his name that the valley of Jezreel instead would be known for this Messiah reigning in that place one day. This is all looking forward to the future covenant in Christ. So look at your screen. What, what takes place in the book of Hosea takes place over three chapters, but I, I found one place where it really the idea well and he's talking to this is this is God explaining what we've just seen and how how it relates to to us and him in this new covenant and in that day declares the Lord you will call me husband that's the relationship God desires with us by the way you will call me husband and you will no longer call me Baal this is talking about their pursuit of false gods other than God. For I will remove the name of the Baals from her mouth, and they shall be remembered by no more. And I will make for them a covenant. And on that day, the beasts of the fields and the birds of the heaven and the creeping things of the ground, and I will abolish the bow, the sword, and war from the land, and I will make them lie down in safety. And I will betroth you to me forever." 
betrothing. Is it us by our good works? He will betroth us, this people, to himself. He goes on and he says, I will betroth you to me in righteousness and in justice, in steadfast love and in mercy. I will betroth you faithfulness and you shall know that I am the Lord. Verse 21. And in that day I, I will answer, declares the Lord, and I will answer the, the heavens, and they shall answer the earth, and the earth shall answer the grain and the wine and the oil, and they shall say to Jezreel, and I will sow, I will sow her for myself in the land, and I will have mercy on no mercy, and I will say to not my people, you are my people. And he shall say, you are my God. Remember last week we made, we walked through many of these places in the Old Testament where God is calling, this is God's heart, that we would be his people and we would say back to him, and you are my God. That's why he's done all of this. Applied to us in the new covenant of Jesus. I think we've talked about it a little bit, but Lord willing, we will make it more plain. It's beautiful, even though we are born into sin, that's not where God leaves us. He gives us a new name and new identity as sons and daughters of the King. We were once not God's people, but now he's given us this new identity in the blood of Jesus. We once were a people of no hope because we did not have access to his mercy. God's chosen race, his, his royal nation. This promise in the Old Testament of once you were not a, a people, but now you are God's people. Once you were, had not received mercy, but now you've received mercy from verse 10. You, Peter and Paul both quote, Paul quotes it multiple times. This, this, this new co uh, covenant understanding uh, is integral to how they understand who we are in Jesus Christ. We are people with a new identity. We are people who have received mercy, and we are, a, are adopted by God. And I want to just sit for a second in the gravity of who we were before we received this new identity. First, it tells us that we were not a people. We were not God's people. If we are not God's people, you know, all of chapter one is building up this new as this future inheritance. If we're not God's people, we have no access to this inheritance. Then it says, and the other name is that a name of no mercy. Outside of Jesus Christ, we all are condemned. We do not deserve God's mercy. We should not receive mercy. But God being rich in steadfast love and justice and righteousness, as the passage we just read in Hosea, he sent his son to die for us so that we could receive mercy. And because his son died for us and he drained his veins on the cross, we now are a people of God. We are now a people of mercy. We have been given life. Jesus took our punishment of death, but he gave us life, life in the now. By 
His Holy Spirit. We talk about eternal life like it's something to come, everlasting life like it's something to come. No, we get to experience that in the here and now because God himself dwells in us. But we've also been given life in the life to come. Life that we will be with God forever in a place without pain and suffering, sin and death. It's God's mercy that we are now a part of this kingdom and we will reign forever with him as co-heirs to the kingdom. I think that's something that gets quickly. And this passage from Hosea draws us to it. Hosea uh, 2.23, this is God's desire that we would be his people and that uh, we, uh, I got tongue-tied, that he is our God and we are going to be his people. Like, Hosea adopts these children and takes them into his own home with all the blessings of having him as their father. God also adopts us as his own. And we now have all the rights to be called children. Galatians 4, 6 says this, And because you are sons... God sent the spirit of his son into your heart to cry, Abba, Father. You are no longer a slave, but now a son. And if a son, then an heir. We've not just been saved from hell. We've been saved to reign with God. We've been saved to reign with his son. We've been saved as sons and daughters of God Almighty. We've been given this new identity, this new race, this new job, this new as God's people. And all this, look back at verse 9. Here's the purpose, that you might proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness into marvelous light. That's why, that's what, that, that's what this is for. Story that we get to tell people, it's beautiful about a God who loves us and a God who is mighty to save. Let's look at verse 11. We're to be fighting the flesh. He says, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions, the flesh, which wage war against your soul. We as elect, we as elect exiles are to conduct ourselves for righteousness. Peter is urging us to abstain. That's the verb. That's the, that, this is the cam- command, to abstain of the flesh. I love uh, this other word here where he's telling us that he, he's urging us. This word is perikaleo, and it means to draw near or to admon- um, admonish or to comfort. This is like a rally call. This is like getting down on one knee and embracing your child. Or a coach, when you fail, bringing you over and putting their arm around you, telling you to get back in there. And the only way, reason I told you the, the Greek word for urge is because it correlates to who the Holy Spirit is. The, the word for urge is parakleo. The, the word that we get for the Holy Spirit in one of the places is the paraclete. He is the urger. He is the comforter. He is the helper. God could have been like, look, 
done enough in Jesus. I'm not encouraging you or urging you in holiness. I've said it once and that should be enough, which would be fair, right? That would be fair. But instead, he writes to us to where we can communicate in his word. And he reminds, like, there's not a whole lot of different themes going on in the Bible. There's just a couple. And it's over and over and over. The book of Deuteronomy literally means the re to repeat. It's the repeating of the laws that came before. He's so kind and he's so patient in calling us to holiness. And not just that, he sends his spirit to dwell within us to urge us, to comfort us, to empower us, to walk in this holy life that he's called us to. to. Abstain from the passions of the flesh. The passions of the flesh, even in Christ, are still real. And we must fight. It tells us that the, the passions of the flesh are waging war against us. And that means we have to fight. Though we've been given this new nature, this new identity, this new life, the old man, that old nature, it's still alive and it's still powerful. And the passions of the old man are strong. And God is calling us here to wage war against the flesh, I believe. So how do we go on the offensive against sin? Waging war is not a passive thing, right? The devil and the demons, you got to understand your own sin nature, they are launching attacks against you until you fall into sin. They want to lead you away from God. So how, what are we to do? James 4, 7, I think is helpful. It says, resist the devil and he will flee for you. Well, that's a good statement, but like, what am I supposed to do with that? Well, thank you. James 4, 8 answers the how. Draw near to God, draw near to you. The devil will flee when God draws near. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your heart, you double-minded. Temptation and the devil cannot withstand God being near. If you want to fight sin, draw near to God in the word. Near to God in prayer. Call on God to fight the battle on your behalf. When you find sin prowling near, call on God. Drawing near to God is how you wage war against sin. As a believer, it's done in prayer, in the word, and this one you're not going to like a whole lot, in the community of faith. There's no context in all of the Bible for a solo believer, an autonomous Christian. We were been saved to the body of Christ. Trying to fight on your own will lead you into failure. That's why God has given us one another. And if you have this constant besetting sin and you want to fight against it, find a brother or sister in Christ, and this is uncomfortable, it's okay, and confess that sin and ask for daily prayers for deliverance until God 
Most Christian strategy against sin and the devil is either passive or defensive. The offensive looks like being with God daily. Defensive looks like waiting for the temptation to pass and just hoping upon hope you won't follow. The devil's there to aggravate. Your sin nature persists. I mean, think about what took down the mighty Samson. The nagging call of sin. We're not people in the Bible. We have to take the fight to sin. I know defense is necessary, but I hate defense. I want to I be the aggressor. Like when, when growing up playing sports, being on defense, whether I was playing basketball, being in the field, playing baseball on a bag felt like punishment. But being on offense was fun. Being on offense is how you took it to them, right? Defense, you're just constantly reacting. Offense, you're taking the attack forward. You need to understand that we're in a war and you can be in a defensive posture and hope to wait out the attack or you can choose to spend time with the God of angel armies whose hand is on the hilt of his sword and willing to win the victory for you. John Owen says this, be killing sin or sin will be killing you. Waging war is not done passively. Waging war is the offensive strategy. Wake up and ask God to kill the sin in you. As you go through the day, when you feel that besetting sin come upon you, ask for deliverance. You know, we want to treat prayer a holy grenade. We, you know, we want to pull the pin, throw it, and walk off and see the explosion like on an action movie, and then the, the issue's done. It may take hours for you praying that God would remove the temptation. Not for four that he would remove that temptation. This work that we've been called to, it's hard. It requires effort. It requires prayer. It requires being in the word and confessing to brothers and sisters in Christ. So I want to give you a winning strategy for being on the offensive. You know, I... When I talk to a lot of people, they tell me about when they pray, and most of it is as they're going to work in the car or some sort of transition. That's great, but I want to call you to something more. Because at best, you're making God an afterthought in your day. Let's wake up and give God our first fruits. If that means you hour, just go to bed earlier. What's more important, the glory of God or not getting to watch Everybody Loves Raymond? Like, go to bed earlier. Give fruits of your day.
Go, go make your cup of coffee. For me, I, I try to do this all the time. You can ask my wife. I'll, some days I, I wake up early. I'm like, I'm good to go. I don't even need coffee. And then I wake up like 45 minutes later with drool rolling down my... Go ahead and make that cup of coffee. I, I'm still putting that in the first fruits. Sit down with the Lord. Open the book. Read. It may not feel like anything's happening. That's okay. Pray. It may not feel like anything's happening. That's okay. Pray. Put yourself to the Lord. Draw near to the Lord. And even if you don't feel like anything's happening, what does the Bible say? When we draw near to the Lord, what will the Lord do? He will draw near to us. And temptation will flee. The devil will flee. This is not won by being passive. But don't be devastated when you lose a battle. I've been reading um, biographies about the American Revolution and the Civil War. There were a lot of battles that were lost. The main battle was won, or the main war was won. When you lose a battle, when you fall into sin, because you will, what do you do? Regroup, repent, and repeat daily of reading your Bible, praying, and being accountable to other believers. That's the winning strategy. That's not only the winning strategy, but that's the winning strategy on how we make disciples. We teach others to read the Bible, spend time in prayer, and be accountable to others. So what about those of us who, if we were honest, we would say, we've been walk, we've not just lost a battle, we're just at this point, we're just walking in sin. We feel like we've lost the war. What, what about me, if I'm, if I'm here today, I, it was everything I could do to come through the door and yelling at me about sinning. What do, what do I do? Well, I want you to be encouraged by Hosea. Hosea entered into covenant with Gomer. She, as we do, freely left and walked. She freely left and took another lover. Yeah, okay, you freely left God and you've taken another lover in a form of some sort of sin that you've not yet been willing to repent of. And what, what we feel like happens when we leave God is that God's somehow far away. But the picture is that Hosea his bride and he purchases her back and he lives and loves her when when we when we fall into sin we feel like we're moving so far away from god because that's the language we use around church but how is jesus described jesus is described as the friend of sinner jesus is described as the one and saves the lost it is jesus's very nature to pursue a sinner so when you are walking in sin, if you would stop, turn, and repent, that means turn from your sin and turn around, you're not going to see Jesus all the way across the room. You're going to be looking him in the eye because he's pursued all along the way. He's not going anywhere. He's pursuing you. You've been sought, you've been bought, and you've been pursued. You've been bought at a price. You've been sealed by the Holy Spirit, and he will not leave you or forsake you. It tells us in the Bible that nothing can separate us from the love 
entered into this covenant. Nothing, uh, no, nothing in the heights, nor depths, nor powers, or principalities of this world. That means you can separate you from the love of God. That is this picture of Hosea that we're seeing that pursues a into her sin. If you're here today and you're just wrapped up in stuff, know your king is pursuing you. Your betrothed is pursuing you. The lover of your soul is pursuing you. And if you would just stop and repent, you wouldn't find condemnation. Instead, you would. Let's look at verse 12. We are to conduct ourselves in righteousness. Verse 12 says, to keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so when that they speak against you as evildoers, which they will, doesn't say that, but they will. When Jesus tells us, uh, they rejected me, they're going to reject you too. We're not better than Jesus. That they may see your good deeds and they glorify God on the day of visitation. So why are we to act? First, it honors God. But Peter lays it out as uh, first a benefit to you and then a benefit to the lost around you. So when are we to live honorably? Where are we to live honorably? At all times and all places. The way you live is taking your testimony of Christ public. When we leave, we are taking our testimony of Christ public. So how is living honorably a benefit to you? Why is it better to live honorably to cuss the coach on the ball field um, for making a bad call or to act like your pagan friends that you were friends with in high school um, when you go, go to a barbecue? Why is it better to live honorably? Well, remember the context. Christians were under attack. When Christians will be under attack in this country again. But Christians were under attack. And these believers Peter is writing to, they were under attack socially, politically, and physically. They were constantly being drugged into court. And you can see this in the stories of Peter and Paul in the book of Acts. Accusers could only accuse them of doing good things. Jesus was only accused of healing people. They, they were only accused of doing good things. And when, when they would make these accusations, what would end up happening is the ones who accused them would look like fools. And as their trials would go on, they were then able to give testimony of the good news that, that lives in them of what Jesus Christ had done. And at the end of every one of these trials, you see something similar. People coming to know the Lord so that on the day of visitation, when, when God comes back, be glorified because of their good works, because they lived honorably. So the way you live is you taking your testimony of Christ public. So if you're at the ball field or your job or I want you to understand the way you live matters because these are all places that you can find accusation you yelling at your kid for dropping a ball or a coach for making a, a bad call, whether you like it or not, it's public. There is a man 
football coach. And when I was a kid, I'd sit with my mom in the stands and there was a man from the church we went to who would sit behind us and he would, he would just cuss my father the entire time. He would yell at my family. He would call us out by name. And he would come in and just apologize to us. I'm so sorry. What do you think I believed as a, as a 12-year-old about that man? What do you think I believed about what he believed about Jesus? What do you think all the lost people who sat beside him believed about Jesus? How you act in public is taking the testimony of Jesus Christ public. The way you conduct yourself reflects the truthfulness of the claims about Jesus. Your conduct reflects Jesus. And here's the thing, if you're not proud of what you've done, hey, fix it, repent. The, the, the point's not feeling bad about yourself. The point is repentance and following after. Think about, you know, a lot of people feel like their home is where they can let their hair down. You know, that's, that's where I don't necessarily have to act as honorably. Well, people say they leave church because of hypocrisy. I get the number now. It's something like 60 or 70% of students when they, leave the, uh, when they graduate don't come back to church. And when you press them, they're going to say something about the hypocrisy. But when you really start digging in, what you're going to find is the hypocrisy that they saw in their home claim to believe in Jesus. Accusations can come from anywhere. Accusations can come from where we work. Accusations can come from where we play. Accusations from within our own homes. There are little eyes watching us everywhere we go. Peter says, let them see your good day, deeds that on the day of visitation or when Jesus comes back for our vernacular, they would be worshiping the Lord. The idea that your message matches your life, people will come to know Jesus. When your message matches your life, people will come to know Jesus. By you living honorably, you are benefiting yourself, benefiting others, and you're bringing glory to God. So let's take a moment in this time of response. If you don't know Jesus, somebody standing here, I'd love to pray with you, or maybe you've got something heavy on your heart. But what I would like us to do in this final moments that we have, is let's reflect whether or not we've been living honorably before others whether or not we've been living honorably before our children, whether or not we've been living honorably in the places we go, whether we've been living honorably at our work. Could someone accuse you of corporate theft? They look at the work that you've done and say, he's definitely doing that unto the Lord. Or would they have some sort of other response? We are called to take our testimony public everywhere we go and with everything we do 
we are to live honorably so that on the day of visitation, the, even the ones who would bring accusation because they've seen the way we've lived our life and they've heard our message, they too would be worshiping God. If you will, bow your heads.